I want to, again, bring our attention back to Genesis 15 briefly. We're going to be in a few different passages of Scripture this morning. And um, I just really want us to see, again, the significance of this, this covenant, but kind of the idea or the theme of covenant. In Genesis 15, just to refresh ourselves briefly, Genesis 15, verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot, a flaming torch, passed between the pieces, and that would be the pieces of the animals that God had instructed Abram to bring to cut as they were making this covenant. The fire pot and the flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites. The Girgashites and the Jebusites, as we said last time, all of the, all of the ites. Okay. But the significance, the thing that we pointed out, God really cut this covenant. He made and kind of ratified or sealed this covenant with himself. A great darkness had fallen upon Abram. He was off to the side and the, the fire pot and the flaming torch passed between the pieces signifying that this was God making this covenant. There was nothing there was nothing that Abraham could undo or, or could do to undo this covenant or there was nothing that Abraham could do that would nullify this covenant. God's people first would be in a land that was not their own and serve and be afflicted for 400 years and then they would be brought back to uh the land that was promised to them. And God says plainly, to your offspring, I give this land. And so we talked about the significance of that, that this covenant did not rest upon Abraham's shoulders, that it was up to him to do what he had to do in order for these promises to come to pass, but simply that these were the promises that God had given him, and these were the promises that God would fulfill and that God would bring to pass regardless. And we spoke about the fact that Abraham, we've already covered one significant event, but once we get to chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah again are going to try to take things into their own hands. It's going to be a misstep, uh, trying to do it their own way rather than trusting and resting in the promises of God. And we know that Abraham did not perfectly follow God. He did not flawlessly follow God. There were shortcomings. There were things in which he and Sarah fell short in Yet the promises of God still stood. We talked about why that's important for us today. And that's the, that's the idea. That's the topic that I kind of want to unpack a little bit more. And I want to do so by first looking at a couple of Old Testament uh, passages where God's people 
They are the ones who say, we will do all that the Lord commands. We will do. We will obey. We've already read one of those. It was for our scripture reading uh, at the very beginning of the service. But let's look again briefly at Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And, and all the people answered with one voice. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, this was after the Ten Commandments and the law was given and Moses told the people all that the Lord had commanded. And they say with one voice, we will do all that the Lord commands. Now, just briefly, if you if you are even vaguely familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Did the people of Israel do all that the Lord commanded them? Folks, it was before. It was before they even left Mount Sinai that they had made a golden calf and was worshiping the golden calf. It did not take very long for it to show itself that the people of God would in fact not obey all that the Lord had commanded them. And we, we read a, a little bit further there and we, talk, and we saw where in verse 6, Moses took half of the blood of all the animals that were offered and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. I mentioned in Sunday school earlier that I was... I was very happy that they included one of the questions that they included in the lesson. And again, I did not, um, just as of last Sunday, uh, I, w- I was still planning on just going right to Genesis 16. This was a thought that I had and I'd kind of started working on this, but I figured, hey, we'll just go straight to Genesis 16. But I really um, felt strongly that, that we did need to unpack this idea of the covenant a little bit further And I knew that I was going to be looking at these verses. Well, lo and behold, uh, in Sunday school this morning, there was a question about Peter. Peter told Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And the question in the book was, uh, how do our good intentions often get so derailed? And we fall so short. And Peter was one who said, Lord, I'll do this and I'll do that. And it was Peter who denied Christ three times. Here you could say the people of Israel, they had great intentions. I think they were sincere. When they said, we will do all that the Lord commands. They had just been brought out of Egypt through through miraculous signs and wonders, the parting of the Red Sea. They knew that they were God's people and they said, we will obey. We will do all that the Lord commands. But it didn't take very long Again, before they even left Mount Sinai. It did not take very long until it showed itself that they would not be perfectly obedient to all things. And they fell short, not just a few times. If you're very familiar with the Old Testament, time and time and time and time again, Israel rebelled against God, turned away from God, went after the gods of other nations, the pagan gods of other nations. Look at Joshua 24. In Joshua 24, a very 
a very similar thing takes place. In Joshua 24, starting in verse 14, he says to the people, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is a very popular passage of Scripture. You see that framed in a lot of people's homes. They might have it on the wall or they might have it on a nightstand or a coffee table. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, here's... Some some greater context to that passage. Joshua is saying that to the people. And the people answered him in verse 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And who did these uh, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. We will serve God. And Joshua says, you're not able. He is holy. He's a jealous God. And if you turn, He will do you harm after having done you good. He's a jealous God. And they said, no, far be it from us. We will serve the Lord. The book directly after Joshua is Judges. And in Judges, a common refrain is that the people did what was right in their own eyes. So again, it did not take very long for the people of Israel to show that they would in fact not serve God and be obedient to all the things that He had commanded them. So, consider the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Consider the Israelites in the book of Joshua. But also, consider the covenant that God made with Abram where the the darkness had fallen upon Abram and God made that covenant with himself. And also, I would say this, consider, we're in the book of Genesis, consider once more Genesis chapter 3. God tells the serpent that there will be enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman. And that he will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that the serpent's head would be crushed or bruised. And there was no stipulations to that promise. God simply said, this is what's going to happen. God didn't in turn look at Adam and say, okay, Adam, that serpent's head will be crushed if you do what you need to do. Or if you obey me and if you do all that I tell you to do, then the serpent's head will be crushed. It was just a promise. There will be enmity between your seed and her seed. 
You will bruise his heel and he will bruise or crush your head. And it was a promise. A guarantee. It's going to happen. And all throughout our study of Genesis, we've repeatedly, uh, I've tried to point to Jesus and the gospel as many times as I possibly could. And today, really, that's, that's all I'm simply trying to do again as we, as we think about this idea of covenant. We've mentioned already throughout this study that Abraham was justified by faith. God gave him a promise and he believed it and it was counted to him as righteousness. Once more, I will remind us all that Abraham was not called by God, chosen by God. Abram was not a child of God because of anything that Abraham did or that anything that Abraham accomplished. Abraham was called out of the land in which he was to a land that God would give him. He was given great and mighty promises that he would have a son, that he would be the father of a great nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. We talked extensively that there is a promise with the gospel that Christ has come. The Savior has come. Born of a virgin, lived a spotless, sinless life. He, he laid down that life willingly upon the cross. He was buried. He is risen again. And there is a promise with that that all who believe will be saved. Never perish. But all those who do not believe are condemned already. But the promise of eternal life, of course, is what we focus on the most, the gospel, that it's good news that Christ has come because sin and death have been defeated. And all who believe will be saved. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, all believers now and for all of time are justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so as we consider that, and we add to that now this idea of a, of a covenant. In Exodus, when we were reading, uh, we noticed that Moses took the blood and he sprinkled the altar and he sprinkled the people. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if you will. And let's consider this sprinkling of blood that pertains to the purification of the people, the, the, the covenant uh, between God and His people. We're going to start in Hebrews 9. I apologize. I said 10. We're, we're going to read from 10 as well. But we're going to start in Hebrews 9. And one, one last note. In the cutting of a covenant. In Genesis 15. With that, with that type of a covenant. It was literally that. They were agreeing that. If either one of us falls short of this covenant, if we break this covenant, then let what was done to these animals be done to me. So death. Elsewhere, when you think about a covenant just in general, when you make a covenant with somebody, you're entering into that agreement, you're entering into that covenant, and that's a serious, weighty thing. Now, think about entering a covenant with God. When God enters into a covenant... When God gives an oath, there is no way whatsoever that God is going to break covenant. 
Or that God is going to disregard His oath that He has given. But consider that the people said, We will do all that God has commanded us. We will do all that the Lord has given us. We will be obedient. And in Joshua, even after he says, You cannot, God is holy, God is jealous. And if you turn and worship other gods, foreign gods, He will do harm to you after having done good to you. And they say, No, we will do it. What the people of Israel deserve is the judgment and the wrath of God. And yet, all throughout the Old Testament, we never see where God fully destroys the nation of Israel. Where He pours out the fullness of His wrath. The nation of Israel never dies until Christ. Christ is the true Israel. And he laid down his life. All of the sins committed by the children of Israel, those that were true Israel in the Old Testament, all of their sins that they committed that earned them death, those sins were judged in the person of Christ who bore their sins, paid the penalty for their sins. But not only that, he paid the price and laid down his life for the sins of all who would ever believe, not just of ethnic Israel, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who believe will be saved. So it wasn't just for the Old Testament ethnic Jews that Jesus laid down his life and he atoned for their sins. It was the sins of all who would ever believe. And we can rejoice in that. All of the sins that we have ever committed that earn us God's wrath and judgment. All of the sins that we've ever committed that deserve God's wrath and judgment. For those who believe, those sins were paid for, atoned for on the cross of Christ. Therefore, we will not taste eternal death. We will never perish, but we will live eternally because of Christ and what He has done. And if we ever find ourselves asking, well, how can I, how can I know that I have that? How can I know that I possess that? How can I know that I'm a child of God? We come back to the beautiful truth that all who believe will be saved. When we look upon the person of Christ, when we consider Christ, do we see our Lord and Savior? Do we see the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world? Who laid down His life and His blood was spilled and that blood has atoned for even our sins? Even my sin? Even Caleb's sin? Do we have the Spirit within us that testifies, Abba, Father, crying out, testifying within us? So Israel, and we know that true Israel are those that are of the faith. As Paul says in Galatians, those that are of the faith are the children of Abraham. All of our sins are worthy and deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. 
And yet through Christ, we never perish, never die. How so? Why? Because those sins, our sins, have already been paid for. The penalty of death has already been given. But not to us. To Christ. Christ is the true Israel. I don't have I don't have a lot of time to unpack that a lot today. You may have never heard that. You may have never considered that. That Christ is the true Israel. All those who are in Christ are saved. All those who are in Christ are true Israel. But just consider this briefly. Jesus himself, when you, when you look at the, the birth of Jesus and that narrative, everything leading up to that. Mary and Joseph went to Egypt for a bit. And so Jesus himself came up out of Egypt. He is the Passover lamb as well. There's another little connection there. But Jesus himself came up out of Egypt. Jesus himself was tested in the wilderness. Much in the same way that Israel, once they came out of Egypt, they spent way too many years in the wilderness due to their stubbornness and their complaining and their murmuring. Israel in the Old Testament sinned in the wilderness. They gave in to the temptation of the wilderness. Jesus was tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness and yet he was without sin. Because of their sins in the wilderness, sin in general, but going with this theme, because of their sins in the wilderness, what, what the entire nation of Israel deserved was death, to be wiped out. They deserved judgment. They deserved wrath. And yet God still... It was the next generation, but God gave the people of Israel the promised land just as He had promised. God is faithful. Jesus, tempted in the wilderness yet without sin, was not deserving of death, yet died. Laid down His life. For the sins that we committed, because He had committed no sin. And because that perfect, spotless, sinless lamb laid down his life upon the cross, we have access or entrance into the promised land. He himself is the way or the door to the promised land. So as we consider that, we turn now to Hebrews again with with Exodus in mind and Moses sprinkling the people. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 11, now from this point forward in this sermon, there's going to be a lot of scripture read. It's going to be in Hebrews, but we're going to read a good chunk of scripture. So before I begin reading from Hebrews, I would like to take a moment and just insert a word of prayer here uh, into this sermon. So if you would, pray with me for just a moment. Lord, I pray now as we come... To these next few verses that we're going to look at, God, I just pray that you would give us, your people, understanding and wisdom pertaining this this great doctrine, this great thought of covenant, that we are your covenant people, that we have been sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb. And God, that all those who are redeemed are redeemed because of a covenant between you and the Son. God, I pray that you would 
just illuminate our understanding of the Scriptures, illuminate our understanding of the truths. And God, I pray that You would grant encouragement and strength and rest to our souls as we consider these things. And God, I know that I cannot preach this accurately and and we cannot understand these things accurately unless it is Your Spirit that is leading us to all truth. And so God, we just pray that You would do that now for us as we consider uh, these next few verses uh, in this topic of covenant from the book of Hebrews. I pray that You would be glorified. I pray that Your will be done. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Consider that. When Christ died upon the cross, when Christ's blood was shed, uh, when that blood was shed for the atoning sacrifice of our sins, um, when He has entered into the holy place and that blood was offered, thus securing... And eternal redemption. For if the blood, verse 13 now, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification, or sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve? The living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let's unpack that one little section right there. So those that are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. That takes us, go to Genesis right where we're at on Sunday mornings. God called Abram. Out of the land in which he was, from his kinsmen, and said that he had a promised inheritance for them, or for him and his offspring, a land that he would give them. Christ died, Christ offered himself as a sacrifice before God, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The covenant of the law. A covenant of works, if you will. Well, we're going to do everything that we need to do. We're going to follow the law. And that's going to keep us right with God. We all fall short of the glory of God. Where a law is given, the knowledge of sin abounds. Again, the simple analogy that I like to use, even with adults, maybe it's just me. I don't think that it's just me. But we see a sign that says wet paint. Don't touch wet paint. Well, that's a law. And what are we often tempted to do? I wonder if it's still wet. Let me test it. I want to touch it, see if it's still wet. When the sign clearly says, do not touch wet paint. Here's another good one that I know maybe even more people will have a problem with. When you're driving down the road and it says speed limit, 55, that's a law. And what are we tempted to do? Go a little bit faster or a lot a bit faster. Okay? So here's the thing. Where a law is given, there is knowledge of sin. 
trying to convince ourselves that we will be obedient to God and we will follow the law of God and that will make us right with God is a fool's errand. You will never be justified by works. You will never have redemption through your own works. Only by the blood of the Lamb. A death has occurred that redeems from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 16, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now you'll... Your memory will be jogged when we start reading these next few verses. It's going to go right back to Exodus. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In the Old Testament, it was symbolic. It was a, it was a, even that was a foreshadowing of Christ. The people being sprinkled with the blood, the, the vessels used for worship, being the altar being sprinkled with blood. It was a sign of purification. These things have been purified by the blood of the sacrifice. And we as believers, we so often say, washed in the blood of the Lamb. There is a fountain filled with blood. We need to understand the significance of that. Those that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, those that have been sprinkled clean with the blood of the Lamb, have been purified, have been redeemed, have been sanctified, have been saved by that blood of the Lamb. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He represents us. He stands before God on our behalf. It's not us. He stands on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for When Christ returns, it will be to gather His people from the four corners of the earth. And for those of us who are still alive, we ought to be found eagerly waiting for Him. Not nervous about it. So often you see, oh, I'm, I, I don't like reading the book of Revelation because that's talking about the Lord returning. I get nervous when I think about that. Why? Why? 
The Lord returning is, is the best news that we have now. Now that we've received and accepted the best news, the gospel, and we have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, the greatest news that we now cling to is that our Savior's coming to get us. He's coming to gather us. He's coming back. There's nothing to fear about the return of the Lord. We should rejoice. Jump now to Hebrews 10 verse 5. When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then He added, Behold, I have come to do Your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There was a covenant in the Old Testament. That was ratified or, or, or inaugurated with blood. The people said, we will do it. We will obey. We will serve the Lord. We will do all that He has commanded. When Christ comes, when He accomplishes His finished work, there is a new and greater covenant, a covenant of grace. That is the covenant that we are under. And through that sacrifice, by that will of God the Father, through the Son, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, Old Testament, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Following the law. Trying to follow rules and earn our right standing with God. Those things can never do away with sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ accomplished our redemption, our salvation, our sanctification. Christ accomplished all of those things at the cross. There's a covenant involved. The spilling of the blood of Christ, His sacrifice, that offering, is what purchased our redemption. It is what grants us a right standing before God. It is what has atoned for our sin. It is why we are free from the penalty of sin. It is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because the sins have already been paid for. Verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So what does this mean for us? When we consider these things, when we consider the blood of Christ spilled on our behalf that has redeemed us, that has atoned for our sins, that has freed us from the penalty of sin, what are we to do when we think about these things? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened Uh, for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised Is faithful. He who promised. Is faithful. He who promised that the head of the serpent would be crushed. Is faithful. He who promised that the offspring of Abraham. Would inherit the promised land. Both literally in the Old Testament. But then spiritually. As we we come under the knowledge of what true Israel is. And what the true promised land is. And we understand these things. Yes, He who promised all of those things is faithful. He who promised Abraham in in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He is faithful. He who has promised eternal life through Christ His Son is faithful. You can fact check all of the promises of God. He's faithful. You can fact check all of the prophecies about Christ from the Old Testament. They check out. He is faithful. And because He is faithful, we can have a confident assurance that we are saved. We've been redeemed. And it had nothing to do with our works, with our deeds, with our efforts. And it had everything to do with God. The Father... And the Son. The Father has a people for His own possession. The blood, uh, the, the Son sheds His blood to purchase the redemption of those people. To grant them salvation. And we are saved by grace through faith. Justified by faith. And we should have a confident assurance. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. I'll mention one thought because this is, if I had to take a stab at it, the reason why I couldn't get this out of my head and I ended up preaching this instead of just going to Genesis 16, it would probably be this. I know for certain and I am one of the people that can give testimony to this firsthand. But I know for certain that so often a charge goes out to people to make a decision for the Lord or to make a change. And we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school too. Me specifically, it was always whenever I went to youth camp or whenever there was like a youth rally or something like that, it typically revolved... It typically revolved around events like that. And I know one thing in particular, if I did this once, I did it at least, I'll say 20 times. 
I used to listen to all different shades of music. If there was musical instruments involved, I loved it. Because I love music. I still love music. But because I had no parameters with which to keep my music choices in, I will wholeheartedly say that for a long time I listened to some ungodly, wicked, worldly music. So, as a teenager, or even before my teen years, but as a young person, anytime that there will be a sermon preached on like sin and, and turning away from sin and believing and everything, I went to the altar so many times and I would say, God, I'm, I'm making a decision to never listen to this music again. I'm going to stop listening to this music. I'm going to start listening to better things. I'm going to start doing better. And there were other things in my life that I would make decisions uh, along those lines about. But a lot of times with me personally, it was based upon my music or my entertainment choices. Okay? And I would go to the altar and I would cry and I would be sincere. God, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not listening to this anymore. I'm not watching these things anymore. And it would not be too long after that that I would find myself listening to the same songs. Watching the same movies, TV shows that I'd always watch. Because in my heart, that's still what I craved a lot. But also, I was just used to listening to that music and used to watching those things. And that's not justified. It was sinful. But I would find myself so frustrated. God, why can't I do it? Why can't I make myself stop doing things? Why can't I make myself start doing things? I want to serve you, God. I want to do all that you have commanded. Why can't I do it? And I'll be so frustrated. And I'll be so angry with myself. Because in my head, I had it that I need to be able to do everything that he's commanded me to do. Or else maybe I'm not a real Christian. Maybe I'm only like half Christian. Maybe I'm just so weak that I can't do anything right. And if that's the case, then, then maybe I don't really love God at all. And it would keep me awake at night and I would worry about it and I'd pray about it and I'd think about it. And then it would, sometimes it would get to the point where I would just say, I don't even want to try anymore. Because every time I say I'm not going to do something again, I end up doing it. Every time I say I'm going to start doing something, I always end up not doing it. So what's the point? Why even try? I just feel defeated all of the time. And a lot of sermons still today are based around this make a decision, choose, do you do something. Or, hey, you need to make sure that you're on fire for God. I heard that a lot growing up as a teenager. That language is still around, but when I was a teenager, that was real prevalent everywhere we went are you on fire for god you need to make sure you're on fire for god you need to make sure you're burning for jesus and i would i would always turn introspectively like well maybe i'm not on fire enough how do i know how do i know i'm really on what does that even mean there's nothing in scripture about being on fire for god i'm confused like what is it how do you get on fire for god how do i know if my flame's burning hot enough you know Or really surrendering. You need to make sure that you have really surrendered your life to Christ. And I can joyfully, excitedly tell you that when it comes to your salvation, 
It rests only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not in your own efforts. Not in your works. His sacrifice, His offering is what has freed us from dead works. You cannot earn your right standing with God. You cannot obey Him perfectly. You can't do it. And that's good news. You say, how in the world is it good news that we cannot obey God perfectly? Because it points you to Christ who did obey perfectly and laid down His life to cover our sin. To cover the fact that we can't honor God and obey Him perfectly. Christ did. You say, oh, but when you think about it that way, that's almost like a license to sin. God forbid. Just like Paul said in Romans 6, God forbid, grace is not a license to sin. When we understand that we have been forgiven through Christ and His finished work, that drives us and that pushes us towards a greater obedience. Because we are so grateful and so thankful and we have a desire to honor Him and to glorify Him. And now our obedience is a response to having been saved. Rather than obedience that is running a race trying to earn salvation. And there is a chasm fixed between those two worldviews. True believers understand that we are obedient to God and we live our lives as living sacrifices as a result of having been saved. The work has already been done. And we get to live the rest of our lives in humble obedience and joyful obedience to God our Father who has saved us through the Son and sealed us with His Spirit. There is a chasm fixed between that proper understanding of the Gospel and the false perversion of the Gospel that says, I'm doing what I have to do. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm being obedient to God so that I can make sure I am saved. That will never lead to salvation. That will never lead to eternal life. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is Christ. Two verses I want to show you in closing to wrap this up. This really is in closing. I'm not going to do the whole. Here's my first closing, second closing, third closing, fourth closing. But in Isaiah 48, I want us to see something. Starting in verse 6, Isaiah 48. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today. You have never heard of them. Lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear uh, has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Now this is God speaking to His people Israel. I knew that you would deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Then He says this, For my name's sake... I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have uh, I have refined you. 
but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. My own sake I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am He. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. They did not thirst when He led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. God redeems His people. God saves His people for His own namesake, for His own glory. Why? Because He has said it would be so. He sends His Redeemer for the salvation of Israel. And lastly, in 1 Peter, this is just three verses, so just in case you're getting ready to go to lunch and you're grabbing keys or anything like that, bear with me just one more moment. Three verses from 1 Peter chapter 1. As it relates to this idea of covenant and that we are the recipients of grace. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for... Obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. He cuts that covenant, ratifies that covenant with Himself. We are under the covenant of grace. And that is a covenant that involves the shedding of the precious and perfect blood of Jesus Christ. That blood that redeems. That blood that atones for our sin. 
That blood that grants us salvation. That blood that purifies us and sanctifies us. And that covenant, the fulfilling of that covenant, does not rest upon our shoulders to make sure that we do what we have to do and that we're doing our part or else that covenant is nullified. That that covenant is void. No. That covenant is a covenant with God that He made. We are the recipients of the benefits of that covenant. We are the recipients of grace. Saved by grace through faith. But as we have considered these things this morning, and I pray that we would continue to meditate upon these things, think on these things, study these scriptures that we've talked about. If you have ever fallen into that temptation to be in that mindset, or if you are still yet in that mindset, that okay, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to do what I need to do to be a Christian. I'm going to do what I need to do to to be right with God. I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to be more sincere. I'm going to do this. I would encourage you. Rest in the fact. That Christ has already done all of the work. That you could ever try to do. And if you continue to try to do it. You will fail. And as odd as it may sound for you to hear that. This is good news. It is good news to accept the fact that in our efforts to please God in our own strength and by our own merit, you and I will always fail. And in acknowledging that, we can turn and place our eyes firmly upon the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Who did the perfect work of obedience. And laid down his life. To cover our sins. All of the times that we have fallen short of the glory of God. All of the times that we have rebelled against God. Christ's blood has made an atonement. And covered all of those things. And for those who are in Christ Jesus by grace through faith. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean. With the blood of the Lamb. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Purified. Sanctified. To be presented to a holy God at the end of the age. We rejoice in this. If you hear that today and you say, I've I've never known that. I've never never experienced that. I've I've never heard that. I've never thought about it in that way. I, I have been trying to serve God in my own efforts. I have been trying to please God in my own efforts. I would encourage you. Turn away from your own works. Repent and believe. If you're a believer and you've been frustrated and you get get so angry and you get so discouraged because you can't do it, every single time that happens, remind yourself, praise God, it's never been about my efforts and my works. It's all about Him. Set your eyes and your heart and your mind on things above. And the more that we focus on Christ and the more that we pursue Him, you will grow in your sanctification and you will grow in your spiritual discipline. Be encouraged. Find rest in the finished work of Christ. Thank you as always for being so attentive. I do pray once more that this has been an encouragement, a blessing.
I pray in some ways that it has been convicting to us, that it has opened up our eyes. We pray that God would be glorified in all things. Let's close in a word of prayer.